Our lecture this morning will be brought to us by Brother Pete, and his subject will be the gift of God. And he has asked that I read from Luke, the 22nd chapter, the first verse through the 37th. Brethren and sisters and friends, we have had two readings today. And we apologize for the second one on the same subject. But the one that we chose from Luke's Gospel serves to show us that even on the occasion when our Master instituted this service, things were far from perfect. Human nature is human nature in whatever age or generation we find it. And this we must recognize. And this is one of the things to which we wish to speak at this time, because this should serve to us as a warning and an admonition. Nearly everyone that we meet can repeat those most celebrated words of our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a stupendous fact this is, and yet how little is it really understood. We might also say, how little is it appreciated? God gave that we might receive. But how do we receive? In gratitude or in selfishness? We have just uh, partaken in our assembly here of uh, the emblems on the table in the presence of our ever merciful and generous Heavenly Father and in the presence of his Son. As the Apostle Paul said, as often as ye do this, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And he said, the Lord's death God gave. And our Lord, who gave himself, also said to us, this do in remembrance of me. God gave him, as we said, and he gave himself. And he described this gift in these words. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. I will give for the life of the world. The emblems that we partook of are intended to remind us of all this giving, first on God's part and then on our Lord's part. Shouldn't we then be well nigh overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude and of humility for what has been done for us? and our own unworthiness of this grace 
which has been manifested on our part, of which we were speaking this morning in Bible class. But what is our usual response to this that we term the memorial service? Our weekly observance of this extremely simple ceremony can become with us largely a matter of habit. It's the thing to do. It's expected of us. And having gone through this formal ritual, we may have that very satisfying feeling that our duty has been done. Our meeting happens to be large, such as this one, it takes some time for the physical distribution of the emblem, and we may be tempted to look about us to see who is present and who is not. And we all have this tendency, and we must struggle against it. But if we do this, we are not remembering our Lord in the way that he wanted to be remembered. If we come to our weekly meetings and to Bible schools and gatherings to renew acquaintances, to be seen, we are still not remembering Christ in the appointed way. And if we come together at our weekly meetings and uh, if we make this service a focal point by which we express our own carnal feelings of exclusiveness and perhaps our hatred for others of whom we do not approve, of our superior righteousness and holiness, we are making this a desecration, a feast of hate rather than a feast of love. And in that case, our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now it's interesting uh, for us to consider some of the things that we remember and some of those things that we forget. And I want to list six categories of things that we remember quite easily. First, we tend to remember those things which please us greatly such as the successes that we have achieved, the struggles that we have won, the compliments which others bestow upon us. Secondly, we tend to remember those things that we have discovered for ourselves, the thrill of having acquired some wisdom and knowledge on our own. Thirdly, we tend to remember the things uh, which we learn early in life, our childhood, whether it was a happy time or whether it was not. Fourthly, we tend to remember things that have frightened us badly or injured us or greatly embarrassed us. Now, these physical and psychological wounds we bear for a long time and we find it exceedingly difficult to forgive the one who happens to have injured us. Fifthly, we tend to remember things we do repeatedly in daily life, which have become well-established uh, habits, such, for example, as 
the way we earn our daily bread, such skills as, let us say, cooking or driving an automobile. And finally, we tend to remember things that we are forced to learn, uh, such as how to earn a living uh, to, or the things we must do to avoid uh, punishment. Also, we tend to learn special skills that will tend to distinguish us above other people, such as forms of artistry. Also, uh, we tend to remember uh, the laws that we have to obey in order to avoid being fined or jailed or even executed. Now, if you've been noticing the things that we tend to remember, you may have discovered that they all have one thing in common, and that is our self. Self dictates the things that we tend to remember, the things that make a lasting impression upon us, how we may be pleased or profited or protected from what is harmful or unpleasant. In other words, we are the center about which our memories revolve. Now let's, by contrast, consider some of the things we tend to forget, and forget most easily. And of these, we want to list five categories. First, we tend to forget things that hold no special interest for us or fascination. For example, few of us here could name the capitals of all the states in the country, or we may forget the names of people in whom we have had little interest. Secondly, we tend to forget things that have been done entirely by others for us and in which we played no active part, and this is something we wish to speak to particularly in a bit. Thirdly, we tend to forget things that make too great a demand on our thinking power, such as how uh, we might budget our time more effectively uh, and our energy for accomplishing a great deal more than we do accomplish for the benefit of others or even of ourselves. Fourthly, we tend to forget the mistakes that we have made that caused us little pain or loss, such as the traffic rule we disobeyed that didn't result in our getting caught or uh, punished. And fifthly, we tend to forget the lessons we don't wish to learn, such as how always to be thoughtful of other people, or even how to save our money. Now, let us consider some examples from, taken from the scripture of remembering and forgetting as illustrations of these things that we've said. In this, we could go back to the Garden of Eden and the temptation of our first parents. Eve remembered the commandment of the Elohim concerning the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she demonstrated this remembrance in her first reply to the serpent's suggestion. The scriptures don't tell us 
How long, Eve demurred, turning over in her mind the alternatives and weighing the divine warning against the very tantalizing option presented to her by the serpent's lie. But because the unforgettable idea of becoming like the Elohim who had had the rule over them in the garden, plus other attractive features of the fruit, these made a very strong appeal to her human vanity, and she was less interested in the lesson that she had learned from divine authority, so she tragically forgot it to her lasting sorrow and to ours as well. Cain remembered all too vividly the wound to his pride in having his offering, which he may have thought extremely elegant, uh, rejected by God. And he forgot the warning lesson that God gave him. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. With the stinging memory of that rebuke in his rankling in his soul, King had little interest in remembering God's lesson of caution and the need to re rule over his innate sinful impulses and what resulted, murder. Let's turn next to the children of Israel as an example, and with whose fickle memories and their inveterate propensity for forgetting God and his commandments and his covenant, the scriptures abound. Now their birth as a nation coincided with, up to now, the most massive demonstrations of the visible hand of God. The plagues upon Egypt, from which largely the Hebrews were protected, uh, confirmed the testimony that Moses and Aaron were given, giving to them that God was indeed visiting his people in their affliction. It confirmed also a prophecy given uh, three generations before, or four, depending on how you look at it, uh, to Abraham, their forefather, that his descendants should be uh, sojourners in a land not their own, and there they would be afflicted, and from thence God would bring them out with great substance. Now their climax, as the birth of a nation, was the great and terrible last plague of the death of the firstborn, from which they were entirely protected if they observed the commandment to keep the Passover and which they were told never to forget throughout their generations. And this finally ended in their passage through the Red Sea on dry land and the destruction of the Egyptian army which sought to overtake them in the Red Sea. This was a victory that God had gained, and Moses and Miriam memorialized this in their songs of thanksgiving and joy. But how long did the bulk of the Hebrews remember this great deliverance by the mighty hand of God? 
only until their stomachs began making demands upon them, and they forgot their deliverance and didn't reason that a God who could do these mighty works that he had done upon the Egyptians was fully capable of providing them with food, even in a desolate and howling wilderness. But the trouble of it is that when our emotions get wrought up, we forget to reason logically, even in such a simple case as this. It is true they were tried, as Moses told them, that the Lord suffered or permitted them to hunger to see whether they would obey him or not. Later, as their memories of the good produce of the land of Egypt uh, and their annoyance with the day-to-day simple food that God had supplied, which provided them none of the variety which their uh, appetites desired, they even went so far as to accuse God and Moses of perpetrating a terrible hoax upon the people. And as they say, bringing them out of the good land of Egypt to kill them there in the wilderness. And so, if they had, instead of seeing God deliver them, fought the Egyptians and defeated them in battle, this might have been a different story. And they probably would not have forgotten. But as we said earlier, things done for us entirely by others, we forget easily and often conveniently. God told the people when they had reached Mount Sinai, he has seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Obey God's voice and keep God's commandments. Hadn't they been obeying taskmasters in Egypt all their lives? They may have reasoned among themselves that now that they had been delivered, they were at liberty to do what they wanted to do for a change. And this they did in that brief period of 40 days and nights when Moses was absent on the mount, and we know what the result was. So to obey God's commandments, they had only a slight interest. Even though they had solemnly promised before him all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient, hadn't God promised? to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey? And did they find any resemblance to that in the wilderness? So they murmured and rebelled, and as we said, falsely accused God and Moses. They had no faith in God's promises, and so, uh, as we quoted last night, it's from the 92nd Psalm, I believe, and 
quoted in Hebrews, Today, if ye shall hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. They had been slaves all their lives in the land of Egypt, and they didn't know and couldn't realize the responsibilities of liberty. Because liberty does have its obligations, and in that simple commandment, if ye will obey my voice and be faithful to my covenant, this was too much for slave-minded people to rise to. And so, because they were slave-minded, therefore God gave them an enslaving law, which reached down into every detail of daily life. Since they didn't choose to put forth the mental effort to think carefully about what would be behavior fitting in God's sight, they were given a complete rule book to tell them what to do and what not to do in virtually every circumstance they might encounter. So as normal, weak human beings, they couldn't keep that law, and the law convicted them, therefore, as transgressors. The law had said, as Paul reminds us, Cursed be he that confirmeth not uh, all the words of this law to do them. And to this, all the people assembled on Mount Ebal were to say, Amen. So they were to agree to the conditions. The law then held them in its grasp, and as a result became a curse to them, bringing upon them the consequence of death and guilt before God unless forgiven. Now here we observe a most interesting example of the perversity of human nature. Even though the nation of Israel had an almost continuous record of uh, disobeying God's commandments and breaking his covenants, despising his ordinances, we find in the days of Jesus' ministry, the Jews, particularly their ruling class, priding themselves in their supposed observance of the very law that convicted them as sinners. Why did they, for example, tithe the increase of their herb garden, a very trivial matter as far as value is concerned, and come to deserve the rebuke that Jesus gave them, that they passed over justice, mercy, and the love of God? Why did they prefer the harsh yoke of the law and reject the easy yoke of Christ? Perhaps the most likely explanation is the fact that the law was something that they could put themselves into, and they could take from the observance of it a feeling of accomplishment and a source of pride. And in the example that we have given of tithing, mint and rue and anise and cumin, they could demonstrate how very precise they were in obeying the law down to the very tiniest details. Jesus didn't condemn them for this, but because 
as we said, they passed over the very things, the very spirit that the law was designed to teach them. And we find one example in the case of a man who had born, been born blind and had never been able to see, to whom Jesus gave sight for the first time, the way their rulers self-righteously and haughtily reviled him. They, they told this man, Thou art his disciple, referring to Christ, but we are Moses' disciples. They said further to him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? So they cast him out of the synagogue. And this is so typical of normal human pride and prejudice. They were so proud of their law that they despised the Gentiles, referred to them as dogs. Truly, the law that they had was so far superior to anything that the Gentiles had that many of the Gentiles joined themselves to them in religious worship. As an example, we have the Roman centurion who had built them a synagogue and whom they themselves said was worthy. And this centurion's servant was sick and sent to Jesus, asking that he would heal his servant, confessing that he felt himself unworthy for Jesus even to come into his house and recognize that Jesus was a man with divine authority and that he could, if he chose, heal that servant merely by speaking a word or, as we would say in modern terminology, healing by remote control. This man had what the self-righteous Jewish rulers did not have, prompting Jesus to say concerning him, I have not found so great faith, no not in Israel, the very nation that had been given at, up to that time the only basis for faith. Now the zeal that they had for the law was not because it was God's law, but uh, they assumed it was their law. God had given it to them through their prophet Moses and he was one of their own nation, and therefore a source of pride to them. Then in addition to this, they had tinkered with the law, we might say, incorporating into it and its observance many of their own traditions, thereby making it even more Jewish and increasingly a source of pride. By adding their own traditions and particularly watering down the law in its strict requirements and punishments, they uh, opened themselves for Jesus' charge, which was a true one, that they had made the law void by their own traditions. They had put so much of themselves into it that they had convinced themselves completely that unquestionably they were the children of God, and this they proclaimed to Jesus as you can read in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. They felt that God must be so highly pleased with them. As you remember in Jesus' parable, 
of the Pharisees and the publicans, the way the Pharisees prayed to God. But they forgot the dire warnings of the prophets and the usual reward for these faithful men was death. And this reward they gave to the greatest of all God's prophets, namely the Lord Jesus, even as he had prophesied. They considered Moses the greatest prophet. And yet Moses had predicted this apostasy of the nation and gave them a final warning before his death. He first recounted what God had done for them, speaking, of course, through the Spirit, and he said, Esteem the rock of his salvation, of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. Jesus told these Jews of his day, Do not think that I will accuse you uh, and unto the Father, there is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So Israel's example of infidelity and of forgetting their Creator, who alone, and with no help from them, but largely opposition on their part, had made and preserved them a nation, this should be an eloquent and sobering lesson to us. These things, brethren and sisters, as Paul said, were written aforetime for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, because languages change, that is, words take on different meanings over long periods of time, this statement of Paul may have lost some of its original force upon our mind. Because the word here translated patience doesn't mean tranquil self-composure as we use the word today. It actually means steadfastness, continuance endurance. Likewise, the word which is translated as comfort has the force of admonition and warning. So it is not given to us to think that because we have the knowledge of the truth that we can sit back and be in the way we use the word comfortable. We're duly warned by the extensive record given us in the scriptures of how God dealt with the children of Israel, that we shouldn't fall into the same psychological trap that they did. Such warning is vital to our salvation, because we too can fall into the very same trap. If so, why would so much of the scripture record be taken up uh, with what may appeal to us, particularly as we read Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, the monotonous repetition of Israel's continual backsliding. Why were the Hebrews repeatedly referred to as a stiff-necked and rebellious people? 
Could it not be that God does not want us to become stiff-necked and rebellious children, despising his covenant and taking pleasure in our own traditions? As with the seed of Abraham, so also it is with the spiritual seed. God has done it all for us. It's for us to receive with uh, the utmost gratitude the grace that has been stowed upon us and to submit wholly and humbly to his will and covenant. We're presented with the same opportunity that God presented to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai that we've already quoted from the Exodus account. And the Apostle Peter, in very similar words, after commenting upon Israel stumbling at the word, being disobedient, has this to say to us, that ye are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar, meaning purchased people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Do we really understand and know what it means to obtain mercy that Peter mentions? Natural Israel did not, but we must know it. If we're not to fall into the same trap and follow along in their footsteps, we must remember what they forgot. And the writer to the Hebrews warns us, as we quoted last night from that third chapter, we would not want God to swear in his wrath that we shall not enter into his rest. Now, before we can remember something or someone, we must first know that thing or that purpose. We cannot remember anyone whom we never knew in the first place. In his prayer to his father on the night of his betrayal, Jesus said, And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So it behooves us, brethren and sisters, that we learn to know God and Christ, and not merely to know about them. It requires very little effort to know about them, but to learn to really know them is an entirely different matter. It is, in fact, a life work. We've already said that we remember those things in which we are most involved. And therefore, if we are to remember God and Christ, we must become involved with them. We must not take a detached, theoretical view of holy things when we, particularly when we meet uh, around the Lord's table, it's easy to argue about theology. This tendency that we have to become so deeply in love with our own theories 
that we are willing to do battle in the defense of our particular theory is precisely the same trap that the Jews fell into. We see from whence it led them, even to the true charge, as we said, of making void the word of God. It's because expounding a theory which particularly appeals to us uh, that it gives us the feeling that we know all the answers, that we cease contending for the faith and unconsciously drift into contending for the objects of our own pride. One of the sublimest topics and the focal point of God's dealings with man is his own appointed way of reconciling men to himself, and that is memorialized in the emblems of which we have been partaking. Yet men have fought for centuries over their rival theories of the atonement, and they've put so much of themselves into it that they virtually assume that God must go about his work of justifying men and reconciling them to himself as they say it must be done. A man of the world has very aptly written, men will wrangle for religion, write for it, fight for it, even die for it, anything but live for it. This, then, is nothing short of arrogance. That is, when we begin to putting our own tradition above the word of God. And <clears throat> I'm not saying for a moment that studying the matter of the atonement or the interpretation of prophecy is unimportant. It is extremely important, but it must be a humble study done in a loving way with the desire to learn what it is that God would have us to do, to learn his viewpoint, and is just the opposite from a study of scripture in search for ammunition to hurl at our opponent. There is so much more in the atonement than we can ever hope to understand. As we say, we must remember what Israel forgot, that God gave, and that we must receive with humility and thankfulness. God didn't consult us as to how he should give or how he should dispense his mercy and forgiveness. God has not chosen to dwell with the self-righteous and with the arrogant or with the kings of whatever generation they might be. We well know that God has said that he dwells with him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembleth at God's word. There's so much we need to remember which the emblems of which we have partaken should recall to our minds. Our Lord asked us to remember him in so doing, and of course to remember his Father also who gave him to the world, that whosoever of that world will come unto the Father through him might have life 
and have it more abundantly. To come unto the Father, we must first be drawn by him, and then we must draw ever closer to him in love and gratitude. As James said, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. We must be content to abandon the world and its ways, and certainly we must not bring them unto the table of memorial. God taught the children of Israel concerning altars which they might build to him, that they must be built of unhewn stones. As he said, For if thou lift up thy if thou lift thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. The writer to the Hebrews said, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. If we lift up the tools of our imagination or our emotions upon the Christ altar, what have we done? We think that the answer is obvious. And finally, brethren and sisters, if we would obey the Lord's request, this do in remembrance of me, that remembrance must be of him. Remembering who he, who he is, what he is now, and what he was in the days of his flesh. He was God's perfect man, the man who put God first above all other considerations. He did always those things which pleased his father, to serve himself or to inject his own ideas into the service of his father. He had not the slightest desire, even though bearing sinful flesh, he had to contend with its natural tendency to do so. It is our responsibility to remember his example and commandments. As he said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself unto him. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. This is the way we get to know the Father and the Son, and this becomes life eternal to everyone who does. We certainly hope that he will remember us when he comes in his kingdom, and he will remember us for exactly what we are. Can we not then learn to remember him in thankfulness and in humility for what he is and for what he has done for us? God gave, but how do we receive? 